woke up this morning with the sundown shining in him. Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the f***ing money, head? Oh, it's, uh, oh, oh, it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. I found my mind in a brown paper bag, but then... 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. I tore my mind. On a jagged sky. Okay, you know, you guys aren't privy to all the new so uh, you know, that's what you uh, that's what you pay me for. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Yeah, let's cut through the chase, okay? What are you guys selling? I lost you sixty thousand dollars. There is no one who wants to make that money back for you more than I do. Just one thing, dude. What's that? You have to use so many cuss words. What the f are you talking about? Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I woke up this morning with the sundown shining in hell. Well, and welcome back to Stocks and Jacks. I'm Tim Greg Bapp is on the board. SB Futures up 22, NASDAQ Futures up 116. Do we have uh, the Professor Lou? Sounds like he's there someplace in the ether. Can you guys hear me? Uh, now we can. Okay, there we go. How are you? I'm doing fine. I was just uh, educating my young board op here uh, and good buddy Greg Pappas um, about the uh, the game last night, and I mentioned uh, there was no joy in Mudville. And he says, what are you talking about? And I said, well. Yeah, how do you? Yeah. You don't remember Casey at the bat when back when people could actually write? <clears throat> um the outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville 9 that day. The score stood 4-2, to two, but wasn't any more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game, Lou. Uh, those are immortal words, in yep, my opinion. They absolutely are. And, uh, but people, and, uh, and I, I... So I want to talk about, I want to talk about Bob Knight. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And his passing, but before that, let me, let, let's... Let's discuss sports literature a little bit. Well, the people used to be when when, when you didn't see the game, <clears throat> the people that wrote were were, were godlike <clears throat> wordsmiths, weren't they? People like Grantland Rice and people yeah, like this. I, I was just I was just thinking of Grantland Rice. Uh, you know, probably wrote one of the greatest um, essays on on college football when he talked about the the four horsemen. Yeah, oh, yeah. And and I'm again. Greg, you'll have to forgive us old people for reminiscing, but I mean, this was this was way before my time and way before Tom's time. But but the imagery that this guy, this the sports writer, created was so stunning that it just captured the American imagination to the extent that they ended up they ended up taking a publicity photo of these four Notre Dame football players on horses. Yeah, <laughs> but. You know the 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 four horsemen of the apocalypse are uh, famine, war, death, and plague. I think something like that. Yeah, and 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 so he starts out by saying, you know, the Old Testament, the or in the in the Bible, the four horsemen are of these guys, but in reality they are. And then he names the four Notre yeah. Dame, the the Notre Dame backfield, and uh, and the, and I mean it, it just it was 
just a fantastic piece of writing. I'll give you a, uh, outlined against a blue-gray October sky. The four horsemen rode again in dramatic lore. They are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death. They are only aliases. Their real names are Stoolholder, Miller, Crowley, and Layden. I mean, imagine yeah. imagine yeah. having you know being a an athlete and having somebody write about you that uh, that eloquently. Um, well, I just love the uh, fact that these guys, what they can do to the language, I only, I'm, I just can only, uh, just jealous of. I mean, they, they, they wrote every day, that was their job, and their idea was to describe stuff that people couldn't see on TV and stuff. So, I mean, you had to be, I mean, the radio announcers were, that's why to this day they're way better than the TV guys. Well, so so the question I've got for you is, do we, because because the medium now is is almost exclusively visual, I mean, or or read, four, or or ten word tweets. Well, you can read. I mean, you can read some good writing on 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 sports. For example, there's a really nice piece. I was just looking at it before we came on this morning. Uh, there's a really nice piece in the Athletic on on Bobby Knight, um, and I, I would I would commend it to uh, to the audience for uh, for reading because it's it's really quite good. Um, but you know that kind of writing. Is just it's just disappearing. I mean, the kind of in-depth analysis of, of of people is is disappearing. You don't unless I think the athletic wasn't was the athletic acquired by the New York Times or wasn't it I, part of? I it? think it, it something like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you'll get occasionally that kind of that kind of writing out of out of out of the New York Times. I mean, there's a fan, this article on night is is quite good. Um, the the I, I remember reading a, a New York Times piece on Shane Battier, and obviously it sticks with me in part because Battier was was a Duke guy, but but it was about him playing in the pros, and it really was a marvelous introduction to the use of metrics in basketball and how how the Houston Rockets realized something that maybe the Memphis Grizzlies did not. And that was when Battier when Battier stepped on the floor, uh, Memphis became. I mean, there was like a some incredible number, like a plus eight or plus ten, in terms of points per quarter when when Battier when Battier stepped onto the floor. And and I used I use him actually as an example of what I call or what is referred to in employment law as a gold collar worker, um, somebody who who instantly makes everybody around them better, pretty much irrespective of wherever you wherever you put them but those kinds of that that kind of writing i mean i remember reading jim klobuchar who who had you know other issues but who was a brilliant writer in the in the minneapolis papers and his stuff about the vikings and about um you know he when when we came down we moved down from canada klobuchar you know klobuchar was skeptical about about bud grant because he did stuff that nobody had ever seen in the NFL before. And, you know, he was, he always gave the impression to the sports writers in, in that area that, you know, football was, was important and winning was important and keeping the, keeping the crowds happy were important and, and having a good team, but, but it wasn't the be all end all of life. And, which which and, it isn't. Obviously. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, I mean, Bud, Bud, and, and to a great extent, the coaches around him led, Led much more balanced lives than uh, than than they do now. Of course, the money the money wasn't the same either. But but still, I, I 
Klobuchar wrote Klobuchar wrote brilliantly and, and it, I, I mean the best one of the best football books I've ever read um, is a book called True Hearts and Purple Heads. I'm not even sure it's it's still in print, but if you want to read something that is truly a, a an insightful and hilarious piece of writing, you should read that. Or um, uh, you know George Plimpton. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you read if you read Paper Lion or Mad Ducks and Bears, you get a snapshot of um, what what the NFL was like from a from a, a viewpoint that uh, was was unique I mean I mean he could he wrote brilliantly on on sports um, his his uh, writing on boxing was was terrific so yeah I mean you, you had who was the other big boxing writer there like Ring Lardner yeah who one of them what's his name Howard Cosell was the was the uh, famous announcer obviously well, Cosell, yeah, but but Cosell wasn't Cosell wasn't a writer. The the thing you got with Cosell was, I mean, with Cosell you got what you would get with me. You you, you know, an overly verbose <laughs> lawyer who 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 kept you know kept mouthing off, you know, with 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 poor impulse control. Um, that 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 was that was Cosell. I I never Cosell had access, but I never really thought that you were getting a lot of insights from Cosell. I, you know, really, Chief, you're not going to no. because because oral the oral communication style of of today's media and and you know on television does not give you the kind of word I won't say word salad, some guys some guys have that, that ability that makes that makes you think about it. <clears throat> some guys have that ability, even in that medium. A guy like uh, I'm going to say Vince Scully moved over a little bit to the other side. He he. Scully was Scully was very good, but and 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 you you can Scully can convey the instant emotion of a of a play or of a, of an event, um, and he did a, he did a great job of that. His great but, line was, uh, "Dan, he is like the rest of us day to day." Right, but <laughs> but okay, so that's a clever that's a clever witticism, um, but. Again, I don't think you have. I just don't. I just don't think an oral no. presentation. But some of those guys used to write too. Some of the older. That's right. Guys. Some of them. Some of them wrote. Some of them wrote very well. Um, who was the guy from Jim? I've dumped his last name. He wrote for the L.A. Times. Um, he was. He was terrific. So. So I guess the question is: Are there are there people out there writing writing like that now? I don't think you learn. I don't think you you learn to write to in that extent. I mean, just. We're beating this up a little bit. Just, just, I can't imagine any of us. <clears throat> this is the last paragraph. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. I can't imagine me right that. And that, and that captures that captures the incredible emotional roller coaster. That poem. I mean, it's yeah. You know, it it uh, it's a little trite, but it's only trite now. Or it sounds trite now because we've heard it so many times. Um, but that that poem captures the emotional roller coaster that I'm sure the the people in Arizona, you know, are uh, are feeling this morning. And boy, let me tell you, I I know, you know, personally from from four Super Bowl losses when uh, when when you know there were 
there were really no dominant sports teams in Minnesota, and you had a you had an entire state riding, really a region riding on the the backs of your, you know, your your, your father's efforts every Sunday. Oh, Joe, I, I would I like think... this to be you, <clears throat> Mr. Pappas, but Pappas preceded Casey, and so did Matty Weber. The former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. <laughs> <laughs> Which would you rather be, Greg, the Lulu or the cake? Both. I am the cake. <laughs> as long as he's getting paid, he says, what's the difference? Um, well, that's, well, that's right. And and I think as long as, yeah, as long as that, that $3 million check rolls in at the end of each game or at the end of the season, I'm, I'm good. Well, you know, it's a... Uh, but so let, let me yeah. let me talk about night because yeah, it's I, a, I, I what went, a subject, huh? Um, you know, the guy the guy epitomized for a huge portion of the country epitomized everything that was right with college sports and everything that was wrong with oh, yeah. college sports all all in one package. Um. I, I, you know, I never met him. I, I you know, I, I, I met just, I mean, passing in a crowd, uh, you know, the Duke, the Duke coaches, his protege, Krzyzewski, but I never, uh, I never met Knight. But how, how did he land the, the Army job at age 24? Did somebody else like die or something? I don't, I don't know exactly how they, how they picked him, but you know, military academies look for, um, they look for guys like Knight or Shashevsky. They try to they try to get people. They they'll give people who are young uh, a chance. Well, he must a, have been a, an assistant or something. They just didn't pluck him off the street. I, I, I think I think he was. Um, but but you know he was he was one of the things that, that get gets lost um, in the. Hold on a second. I'm just going to do take a quick look. Um, yeah, he was he was recommended to uh he was recommended to the army head coach to bring him in as an assistant so so uh after after the head coach was fired they uh they offered him the job he was a, a guy named uh fred taylor who had been his his coach at ohio state and who went on to army but but the service academies frequently do that i mean that was that was the story at air force with a guy named ben martin who who had you know, was very young when he got the head coaching job there at football for football. That the service academies try to latch on to somebody early on in their career if they can, because they can get them cheap. And then if they if they match, if you get the match, and that is somebody who can match up with uh, academics and the and the athletic side of things. And and again, typically your service academies aren't aren't demanding. Uh, you know that you win a national championship. They're they're asset. They're just because they. Everybody knows you're not going to get those kind of kids, um, except in a you know, one in a lifetime kind of kind of circumstance. You get a kid um, who grows nine inches, like what's his name, the admiral? No, Robinson. Yeah, yeah. like David Robinson, or or the kid from Air Force who uh, won the Outland Trophy his, his senior year, first class year, and then went on to play for the Cowboys. Um, but you never get those guys, and it requires a special kind of coach to be able to be successful there. And um, you know, and Knight, I think Knight was relatively successful, but he he was very. I mean, that was one of the again one of the distinctive aspects of him is he, you know, he never let go of the academic side of things. His kids, his players, were you know were were student athletes, and he was he was unhappy with. Um, 
you know, he was unhappy with guys who didn't who didn't show up at class and and you know the my impression is the last thing in the world that you ever wanted if you were an Indiana athlete was an unhappy Bobby Knight. Um, yeah, I've heard that too. I, you know what happens to some of these guys though, Louis? <clears throat> no, matter, no matter how they start out, they almost become a caricature of themselves. I don't know if it's the pressure or what it is, but I think he went kind of way over the top a bunch of times and uh, don't have to do that, I don't think. I, mean, you, I used to play uh, one night a week at Revis High School of all places. Um, the Lithuanian guys would play. These are the guys that were the Chicago group and the, the Lithuanian national team. Lithuanians love basketball, right? And yes, I, they do. And uh, every four years, there's a Lithuanian Olympics. I, mean, I went to Australia one year, and every, there's, you know, there's 15 teams from the U.S. or 20 going there, and there's teams from all over the world, and they go, basketball is one of the sports. I don't know what the other ones were, but they're really into it. So one of the kids was there. I think his name was Valibus. I think his brother might have gone to know her name, but... He's a really good ball player, and he, he goes, I wasn't NBA material. He goes, I go to Indiana, and all of a sudden, one practice, you know, running sprints, and everybody's got their their, their waste paper can. That's that's your puke can. Right. <laughs> and he's like, I don't need this. I was, I was in really good shape. I'm not going to be an NBA guy. Or I wasn't going to be the guy that he could make me into an NBA guy if I wasn't already there already. I, I just, I don't need that. I, I just want to play ball, and, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm willing to run sprints and get in condition, but... What are we doing here? <laughs> you know, I, I there's there's a lot to be said for that too. I mean, what are you doing here? So, so when he was at West Point, uh, six years, four NITs, three semifinals, and that's when the NIT was just as prestigious as the NCAA. Um, so so that that's pretty good. That's pretty good for a service oh, yeah. academy team. And uh, he gets. Well, so was his tallest guy? Six six, six five. Yeah, just pro- probably. Um, he uh, he gets picked up. Well, this this is another point that the athletic the athletic article makes, and I I think this is, you know, this is a marker. Um, he had, you know, he, he turned out a number of uh, NBA players, but only one uh, was an NBA All Star, and yet he won. You know. How many national titles did he win? Yeah. I mean, well, how, he had to, the kid that went the to the the kid that went to the uh, Bulls was injury prone. Scott May, he was a hell of a player. Uh, well, but but I mean, think about think about um, Duke. You know, yeah, compare yeah. him with Shashevsky. Duke Duke has had some fantastically talented players, and they've you know they've won they've won their share of national titles. But but a lot of us who are you know Duke fans look at Shashevsky as a fantastically successful recruiter and a and a very 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 good coach. But we always do say that with the people he had on the floor, you know, he should have he probably should have won more. He probably should have they probably they certainly should have gotten further into the into the tournament than than a lot of those teams did. But that's not the case with Knight. With Knight, he he had kids. Well, first of all, you know, you want to, why would you want to go to Bloomington, Indiana, for anything? Um, he recruited kids into, into into Indiana and then shaped them over those four years into a into a basketball. The people force. down there, people down there were fanatic over that basketball. Well, they they are they are fanatic about basketball, but but you know, again, Bloomington, Indiana is not New York. It's not one Miami. One of the one of LA. Our, I don't want, we don't have time to talk about it. one of my first clients or our first clients here at PTI was this guy from. Columbus, Indiana, that had moved out to 
developer in, in Arizona, and they had a bunch of guys out there that were from Indiana, and somehow somebody would tape the game on his TV back when you like taped it on your Sony taping thing. He would get it to the airport. They would they would get it on a plane to Arizona. Somebody would pick it up and within twenty four hours, like six different guys, they'd go and drop it in the other guy's mailbox and watch the game for the night before. They're nuts. Before you had any of this stuff on TV or Big Ten Network or anything like that. So within twenty four hours the people in Arizona had watched the game from the night before Indiana game. Yeah. This when he yeah. was still there, this is the early nineties. He was still there, right? Uh yes oh yeah yeah when he got fired in what two thousand two thousand one ninety nine maybe <clears throat> somewhere yeah. in there Any, anyway my 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 point is that he was one of these coaches that um, really sort of believed in the role of the coach as not just a uh, an authority on the court on the basketball court but but sort of a a guide for for life and and. Like uh, an individual who was responsible not just for instilling basketball skills, but life skills. And if you, if you, I mean, I've I picked this up early on. If you listen to his players talk, he was he was totally um, explosive and almost you know impetuous with the things that he did on the floor. But one of the things apparently that almost never wavered was his loyalty to his former players, and and he was very very um, he. he he, he remained friends with them. He remained in touch with them. He, he you know, supported them. Uh, and, and even where he had blow-ups with some of his more famous ones, uh, he had, you know, he had one with Alfred, he had one with Krzyzewski. Um, he, he was able to reconcile eventually and put, put a lot he of... He was, uh, I actually, talking about a blast in the past, the, the time, it's the Assembly Hall down there, is the name of the place? Yes, I believe that's the right. The night it opened, I was there. 1970, hell, it had to be uh, fall of 1971, and we, for some stupid reason, I drove down to Bloomington with a couple guys and watched the Irish play there, first game ever in the place, plus the, the assembly hall is lousy, the seats are terrible, the Irish had no team, they lost 94-29, to 29, and he, he never he never took the starters out, I think Digger was ready to shoot him, it was, it was like Digger's second or third game, and he had no team. Everybody near before he graduated, Austin Carr and Carlos Jones, all those guys. And he had a few guys. One guy got in a one guy joined the Peace Corps, I think, so he didn't have him. Another guy, uh, the big star, John Shoemaker, wound up going playing pro, had a blood clot, so he didn't play that late year. Some other guy was in a motorcycle accident and had his leg cut off, so he didn't play. So he had he, he, until the football season ended and uh, Era Lenham, Mike and Willie Townsend, they didn't have anybody. And, and yet <laughs> What's his name? Still got his starters in. And it's like eighty to twenty. <laughs> Digger was not happy. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a. But I mean, unless you, unless you have done a, a real lot of it from every level, I mean, the 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 entire. What is it, the the one of the most incredible uh, things about sports was the old wide world of sports opening. What was it? Yeah. The uh, the incredible the human emotion that's in sports, the thrill of victory. The, yeah. it, it's it's working that hard for a goal. And if you don't make it, you go work even harder. And you can, It's all about, it's, it's not about the destination, it's all about the journey, right? If you play, that's... that's well, that, I mean, as, as a parent, that, that's why I wanted my kids in sports. And that's why, I'm, that's one of the reasons my father, who, who um, I, you know, didn't, did never really pushed us, but, but did tell us, I, you should play something. 
because because sports he he made a great comment with me one time he said sports is not character building but it's character revealing and to the extent that it reveals your character you get to know yourself a lot better by by getting into situations where where literally things turn on the on the bounce of a ball or or a mistake you make in a in a uh, in positioning yourself on a shot or something like that where you have to assume responsibility for letting down a bunch of other people and and you know or or the responsibility for lifting them up and and those those lessons are invaluable and it's a lot safer to learn those lessons on a on a athletic field than it is to you know in a business setting for example or or, in a, or, an, or an army yeah or an army or yeah right well and that's the uh, that's the the old one of the quotes I had to memorize as a cadet at, at, at Air Force was uh, you know, Douglas MacArthur. On the fields of friendly strife are born the seeds that on other fields and other times will lead the will uh, yield the fruits of victory. How about that? Wow. I haven't recited wow. that. I haven't recited that since I don't think since since I was a cadet. Oh, good. The, by the way, that's that's the advantage of being able to. Well, why don't we go to break and come back and talk? Make people stop eating when if they don't know if they don't know the answer to your question. Why don't we go to break and we come back talk about the wars? Because you're a man. SP futures up twenty three, Nasdaq futures up one twenty. Let's figure out between the wars and the the Fed yesterday. What does this mean for investing? And uh, I I, I'll talk about it with Dan. I I could not believe the mealy mouth stuff the the Fed guys were saying yesterday, but everybody loves it. Markets up again. SP futures up twenty three, Nasdaq futures up one twenty. Be right back. Stocks and jacks. How much confidence do you have that your investments will make you wealthy? Do you truly know the odds? Welcome to Luckbox. The control freak's guide to life, money, and probability. Luckbox shows you how to gauge the likelihood of success before you commit to an investment or any other decision. And Luckbox is free for one year at luckboxmagazine.com jocks. Each new issue dives deep into the current investing climate, separates the signal from the noise with relevant trade ideas, and equips you with cutting-edge tactics you don't already know. Luckbox is the essential magazine for proactive investors who are hell-bent on pursuing life, luxury, and happiness through sports, fitness, travel, food, spirits, music, and a whole lot more. Smart investors don't bet on possibilities, they play the probabilities. Luckbox is $7.99 on newsstands, but you can subscribe for 10 free digital issues at luckboxmagazine.com jocks. Don't rely on luck. Get Luckbox at luckboxmagazine.com jocks. Jocks. Stocks and jocks. Stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Right here. Right now. Right here. Right now. Right now. Hello and welcome back to Stocks and Jacks. I'm Tom uh, Greg Pappas on the board. I'm just looking here for uh, Peloton shares are down about 10%, uh, even though the stock's only for something. Uh... Why did an expected loss tepid, tepid holiday forecast? Uh, tepid, I like that. Lukewarm, is that what that is? Tepid? Uh, Dow anyway, futures up 125, individual stocks in the Dow. Uh, pretty much everything's red. I mean, I'm sorry, everything, no red, except Nike's down six cents, United Health's down a buck sixty, everybody else is green. Uh, big movers, Microsoft up 278, Microsoft's up every day. Nice to be in Monopoly. Amgen up 216. Uh, IBM up 126, so everybody's everybody's green here so far, and, w- and was yesterday, pretty much all day. Over in Europe, we've got, uh, uh, these guys are big, big rally. Dick's up uh, 234, 1.6%. FTSE up 94, 1.3%. 
Kek around up 128, 1.85%. Wow, that's a big move. Renasia, Nikkei up 348. This is two strong days in a row for those guys. 1.1%. Hang Seng up 128, 17,230. Shanghai actually down 13.4%. They're heading back towards 3,000 again at 3,009. Surprised those guys get under 3,000, but the rest of the world rallying, but right now they're not looking so hot. Uh, yesterday, Dow up 221, 0.7%. S&P up 44. NASDAQ up 210, so a big day across the board yesterday. Uh, bonds down 8 basis points, 4.70, so they've backed off pretty solid from the 5%. Um, you know, it's all about Fed put more money in. I don't, I don't, uh, I was so dis- disappointed in the performance yesterday the Fed gave it. I'm, I think I'm the only one. Uh, Bund down 5 basis points, 2.69. Japan down 3 basis points, 0.92. Uh, oil up a buck 28, but 81.73. Can't get out of these low 80s. Not that we wanted to, but it, but it can't. Brent up 126.85.89. Again, that spread now is, is four bucks. It was a lot less than that last week. Uh, natural gas down eight cents, 3.41. Arbob up two cents, 2.21. Gold a little bit of a bounce today, up 8.60. 1996 kind of knocking at the door at 2,000 again. We'll see if we make it. Again, silver up 37 cents, over 23. 23.16. Maybe this time for sure. We'll see. Copper up a penny, 3.66. We've got Bitcoin up 812, 35,400, obviously through 35,000. We've got the U.S. dollar uh, down actually uh, half a percent against the euros up to one, well over 106, 106.3, and the pound is 121.9. So we got a dollar movement today we haven't had in a while. we got Forrest Greg, Traffic Weather Sports. Good morning, everyone. It is 634 here in Chicago, 34 degrees outside, 52 today, partly sunny. Phoenix, 57 degrees right now, 85 today with plenty of sun. Traffic, inbound Kennedy from Montrose is 21 minutes. Inbound Edens from Lake Cook, 45 minutes. Inbound Ike from Wolf, 29 minutes. And the Ryan from from 95th to the interchange is 21 minutes. And inbound Stevenson from 294 to the Ryan is 28 minutes. NBA, Bulls lost at Mavs. That was 105 to 114. We've got the Titans at Steelers tonight. Pittsburgh favored by two and a half. We don't really have them because I don't have Prime. Um, Some people have NFL on Prime tonight, and that's Pitt favored by two and a half. And then the big news, World Series is over. Rangers beat the Diamondbacks 5-0. Three in a row. They lost at home. Series was ended up being 4-1. to one. That's all I got, Chief. Back to you. So we should have gone with the betters. It said they were big favorites to start with. I, didn't I believe guess it, so. Man. Yeah, they they probably probably cleaned up on that one. Evidently, the first meeting that Bruce Bochy had with the team when he showed up out of retirement, uh, guys, I didn't come out of retirement to lose, or something along those well, lines. That's Luke. his third team in the World Series? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. So, Lou, uh, there's, there's, there's a... Uh, it seems like, and you listen to some of the people on TV and listen to us, there's an awful lot of uh, independent, shall we say, but not so independent variables out there that are affecting investments, affecting you know people's lives, affecting everything. I don't think I've ever seen so many like arrows in the air, and you don't really know where they're all going to land. I mean, yesterday we had the uh, Fed chairman basically telling everybody that we're we're going to we're going to keep the uh, investment community happy and not worry about the other people. We don't care really if we have 3% inflation. Someday it'll get down to 2 something along those lines. So obviously the market loves it because it means they're not going to... The interest rates might sneak down a little bit. And, uh, and I don't, the, uh, 
the whole idea of how we're going to finance the stuff that we're financing, because people asked him about the deficit, and he, you know, he just blew it all off. And yet you have people trying to find all kinds of money for munitions and everything, because obviously there's a couple of wars going on, and maybe a third one of these days. How do you, how do you pull all this stuff together? It seems like, and you have a guy like a Druckenmuller saying that these guys, uh, they should have, they should have uh, put more well, money well, out there at one and a half percent in the longer run. Go ahead. Start. Let's start talk, anywhere let's in talk. there. Okay. Let's talk about what's going on with this new budget proposal. So, the Biden administration is is in what I consider to be sort of the classic uh, government trap that I first became aware of during Vietnam, during the Vietnam War with Lyndon Johnson, who wanted who wanted to spend, you know, gazillions of dollars on a on a faraway war, but not have it impact. Uh, you know, impact his great society programs, and so we ended up with a monster inflationary spiral that that resulted from us just basically printing more money to cover to cover our our operations in both places. Right now, we are at the prospect of funding to a, to a great extent two conflicts. Um, the the fear, of course with one of them is that it's going to it's going to explode into a much bigger conflict but but the other one is not going well either and so we're funding two conflicts and at the same time we are trying not to take our eye off the ball and the ball in this case in my opinion is taiwan and and so we have to spend enough to upgrade our military capabilities in the pacific which which is clearly in our national interest. You know, the, the the sovereignty of Taiwan is a is a clear-cut US national interest. I would I would argue that the sovereignty of Israel and the security of Israel is a clear-cut US national interest. I would argue I can argue that Ukraine is a clear-cut the sovereignty of Ukraine is a clear-cut US national interest. Okay. We've got we've got these things sitting out there and um at the same time, we're, we're pumping billions, you know, the, the Biden administration, and he, I, I'm not saying that, that uh, a Republican administration wouldn't do the same thing. We saw something comparable with, uh, with uh, Trump, for example, when he, was in, when he was in office. He didn't care about this stuff. But we're in it. We are, we've got inflation. It's not rising as fast as it was, but it's, it's still there, and it's, it's hurting. It's biting into into people's pocketbooks. Um, our, our incredibly stupid decisions with respect to our energy policy is 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 really damaging us, and I think has the potential to damage us much more significantly in the near term. So we're we're pumping money into the into this economy at the same time trying to fund these these basically three two conflicts and a and a potential conflict. And we're coming off of what you mentioned Vietnam. Uh, and Iraq, same thing. Uh, we're, we're, we never really recovered fiscally from, well, I guess we sort of did in Vietnam, but it took us, what, the 70s and 80s and Volcker and everything else to do it. Uh, yeah. We never really recovered from uh, Iraq, I don't believe. Uh, the, the idea that we put that one on a credit card. Uh, the amount of money it spends to take care of the veterans from there and then the, then the Afghanistan fiasco. I mean, uh, you know, just the care and feeding of people who don't have arms and legs and stuff. Uh, 
is you know I don't, plus well, I'm not sure we do such a good job at it. Our, but, our casualties our casualties there are not are not significant. I mean they're certainly not it, we're certainly not looking at the kind of the kind of impact on our economy that you saw after uh, the Spanish American War. No, no. Actually. What I'm, I'm saying is these are these are constant drains. And oh yeah, well, and and, and, and you'll remember, and I I keep coming back to this because it's probably the only legitimately good piece of advice I ever ever gave on this show in terms of finances. You remember, and what was it, 20, 2012 or twenty thirteen, when you asked me what what I thought about investment, and I said, well, if I was a if I was a betting man and over the long term, I'd be buying defense stocks. Yeah, and and that that is going to continue in the near term. You know what? Though last year they were massive winners. This year, the first six months they were massive losers. It that may be the case, yeah. and I'm just you know, you you operate you operate on a different timeline than I do. My timeline is decades. If you're if you're looking to invest over the long term in in, in products that are gonna that are gonna do well, uh, your defense our defense industry is uh, unless some cataclysm happens that shuts everything down, our defense industry is going to be going full out. Right. And, I, the thing the I weird part is though, is you, you can't. I mean, I know you're not a you know you're not a day to day all day long kind of investor like I am for people. I have I have never seen in the last five years what is what is obvious is not so obvious. I mean, look, look at the the Trump situation. He comes in, he's going to put basic industries back on a planet, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can't have you can't have a navy if you don't have a steel plant. I mean, duh. I mean, I you know I, I have no problem with Trump saying that. Uh, yeah, when he came in, the steel stocks went straight down. This guy comes in. What, what what you hear from these people is not at all what actually happens. He comes in and he's going to do the best he can for electric cars, and he and he mouths it all day long to the point where I don't I don't, don't want to see an electric car. They're still they're still talking about it. Yeah, but, they, but the fact is, my my brother and a lot of uh, he has a bunch of clients that they're I don't think they're friends or anything, but but they they are all they were all into this electric car stuff from years so. With his help, they put together kind of a package. We're not, you know, this is not anything you can invest in. This is not trying to get anybody's money or anything like that. But this group of guys essentially all said together, "I like this one. This one does batteries. This one does plug-ins." And between them, they got a group of stocks that, that they liked. Now we didn't invest it for them. They 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 picked and choose. But basically, they they commingled knowledge, for lack of a better term, right? There were like seven or eight guys, and uh, I'm gonna say every single one of them went down the minute this guy came in. And now we have. I mean, if you were to say to me, hey, chief, we had this thing going on in uh, Ukraine, oh, by the way, the Middle East has just flared up, I would have said, oil, 120 bucks a barrel. And oil goes down every day. It's 80 bucks. It hasn't, it hasn't moved at all. I mean, it, this, is, this is really strange, what's going on here. It's really strange. Well, it, it, you're seeing, and we, we talk about this all the time, you know, the idea that whatever your policy, whatever your policy moves are, you you are one, you know, Middle Eastern madman or group of Middle Eastern madmen away from from having all of your plans upset and and turned over. I I think I think we are looking at a, a, a significant and substantial expenditure in high tech defense stocks. For, I would agree. Or the next ten. Now the question is which ones. But we, well, okay. Let, so, let me just say, so, let me say one more thing about you. You mentioned. This administration's attitude towards oil. Okay, now that's a perfect example. Is well toward towards energy general. Okay, towards energy general. Yet, since the man's been in office, we're up a million barrels a day. It's exactly the opposite of what they mouth. He 
his increase in oil per day is way higher than Trump's was. Not even close. Yet, well, if you if you were to look why, at the if you why, were to look at the why are we not then why are we not energy independent and why is gasoline where it is? Well, it, remember, remember I told you the gasoline three. What I'm saying is remember what I told you the key point with these guys are. See, you're looking at the wrong metric. You're looking at how much oil we're we're pumping. I look at how much we can refine. Okay, well, produce what whatever you're looking at. I'm saying is is the, the the facts never actually match up with the rhetoric of any of these people is what I'm saying. Uh, I I think I think it's just a question of I think it's just a question of, of of metrics. I mean we would not we would not be supporting that horrific government in Venezuela with oil purchases and trying to talk to them about pumping out more oil if in fact we were producing enough. We to- we're trying to we're trying to to flank the Russians and the Saudis. And by the way, you know and maybe the rest of the people don't. But well, why are we doing it with Venezuela? Because they because they the have Russians? they have because the single biggest oil reserve in the world. That's why. But they are they are totally unreliable. Why are we not? Uh, why are if we, we not if we get another this? we get another tanker a day out of there. That's all we need. That's all we need. Yeah. Why are we not doing it ourselves? We are. That's our, that's my point. Why are we not energy independent? Why are we importing? We were I energy. Inter- we, I'm we saying. Were oil, I'm we saying were you, independent. I'm saying you can have the, you can have this argument left versus right all day long, but you, but you never. I'm not saying you personally. You never want to stop the argument long enough to look at the, the fact is it, it has nothing to do with the two buffoons I'm talking about. I know. Trump, but, it, but the fact is we have, because of the prices of oil, and this is the part that I, 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 I keep trying to mention to people, the, the worldwide oil industry, its ebbs and flows based, based on prices and production and, and rigs is so much bigger than any government, unless there's a war going on, the, the, it's get Greg, get Greg to pull up the. Uh, the U.S. has been network, an exporter. The, the, the network speech, Howard Beale. Yeah, but, but I'm saying, if you look up, you, you compare Trump and Biden, you would swear on a stack of Bibles that that the that the oil production has been totally. Tr- the fact is, there's way more rigs. And, and I, I'm not a Biden uh, fan. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I know, I know, I'm saying, I know you're not. But, I'm saying but I'm, there's I'm, way more I'm, rigs and way more production in the three I, years you guys been this, there. You and I have had this argument like twenty times. I th- I say you're looking at the wrong metric, and and that's Greg. Look up metric, look up oil production per day in the U.S. So not the most... at, it's not oil production; it's oil refining, and our refining capability has been been hobbled by this guy's energy policies. Our production capability has been limited by this guy's policies, and, the, and, and that's the refining say, part. Well, but the numbers, and you can say, but the numbers going up, and I could say, yeah, but but they're sending the messages. They, will, they don't the mes- allow the messages, they don't allow exploration. I'm saying the messages are like a fart in church, Luke. They're going. The fact is, we're producing more because the prices are twice what they were when Trump was in there. It, it is bigger than Trump, and it's bigger than Biden. We're producing because the prices are higher. Well, and and, and I, we would be. I guess my argument would be we would be we would be refining I, I, enough to keep our to keep our gas no, tanks at, at two dollars a gallon versus six dollars a gallon in California. Anyway, well, let, let, let by me wait. Three forty-seven here. Let me get back. Let me get back. California six. Downtown's almost five. Let me lay out. Let me get back to to defense. This defense issue. You've got two conflicts going on right now that are sending very straightforward messages to people, and and here are here are a couple of them. Number one, you need ammunition and artillery, basic basic production of that kind of stuff. Uh, up front, and you need to have a lot of it, and you need to have a lot of it stored and ready to go. So that that's lesson number one. Lesson number two: the electronic spectrum is is absolutely crucial in terms of your targeting for your smart weapons 
in terms of being able to maneuver, in terms of being able to to uh, figure out what's happening in front of you on the battlefield, and and the person or the the force that has more or less control over what's going on in the ether around a around a particular battlefield is going to have a tremendous advantage because because that way you can blanket out the drones, you can blanket out the smart weapons. And, and you know, you're seeing the Russians, the Russians have picked up on this. They've been ahead of us in this area for, for some time. We are moving on it, but but not as fast as we need who to. Who does that kind of work? Well, um, is that there, Honeywell there or number, smaller people? Well, it's Raytheon. It's, okay. it's, uh, it's, um, Raytheon's, got a, Raytheon's got a huge sector on that. They claim they got uh, a $75 General, General billion. Lockheed, Lockheed Martin's got, got a big group on that. They got a $75 billion back, backlog, the guy from Raytheon said the other day on TV. That's a lot. On what? Just on stuff in general. Well, I, I don't backlog. I, I mean, that's how much orders they have. They, they, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Well, then you should be buying Raytheon stock. You would think, because, yeah, yeah, because because they're doing well. But but elect, the electronic electronic warfare systems, which is what I used to do for, do for the Air Force, um, ELINT, uh, reconnaissance, electronic intelligence, all of that stuff is going to be is going to be crucial um, on a, on a battlefield. Um, surveillance, small localized surveillance systems, small handheld drones. Um, the, the smaller, the smaller, the better. Um, the development of that kind of stuff is going to be is going to be crucial. Um, I I think the development of unmanned battlefield systems, and and by that I mean things like the uh, the robotic pack animal that that. Uh, about Star developed. Wars. Star Wars. That, well, I mean, I mean, I'm talking about specific products now, not not the the ultimate goal I of think the Boston Dynamics of. is private or owned by someone else. Boston Dynamics wasn't that the one? Yeah, Boston Dynamics. Yeah. The, their their robot systems are fantastic. They they've got a robot mule that that or dog that walks along with with soldiers that can carry like 600 pounds of stuff. Um, automated. Automated battlefield recovery vehicles that can come out and pull tanks and, and damaged uh, personnel carriers off the field. Um, unmanned vehicles that can fly as tankers to to uh, refuel aircraft in in midair, and then a whole host of um, brilliant air-to-air weapons that that we are in the course of developing. The the uh, uh, AIM-260, which is a, a super um, modified air-to-air missile that is is designed to you know boost the range of our current air-to-air missiles because we're behind the Chinese and the Russians in terms of the range of of our uh, our air-to-air missiles, so we've got to boost that. Um, the The Israelis are going to be fielding probably within the next six to ten months a laser anti-missile system that that we've been developing with them for years. Um, you know the push. The push is going to be on for that. You know, Iron Dome is great, but Iron Dome missiles cost, I think, a minimum of five hundred thousand a shot to knock down a, a two hundred dollar artillery round. Um, you you, you got to come up with something better, more cost effective. And and you know, we, but in the short term, if you're looking for short term investments, the guys that produce those missiles and and they're produced they're produced here. The the firm that produces the Iron Dome Iron Dome missiles is is going to be loaded with orders for the foreseeable future. Well, how do you how do you uh, assess the fact? I mean, I obviously I 
love having you on and Mike, and it's, it's a point of view, and you guys are take the point of view that what do I have to do once prob, once, to be prepared for trouble and what do I do once it starts. The economic p- piece of me that I've been trying to study these areas for a while, I really should get the economists and actually read what's going on in every country, but I don't. It's so damn boring. Uh, the issue, I think, sort of is, and, and we're a huge part of this. When I say, you know, we, the U.S., the Western world, we've got how many countries that are absolutely falling apart, that have fallen apart, and we seem stunned when there's a problem there. I don't, I don't get that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see like, like who, like Argentina? No, no, I'm talking about Syria. I'm talking about oh, well, Iraq well. that we broke. I'm talking about Gaza with 25 percent unemployment or 40 percent under with, with males under 35. Those are those are powder kegs of. I'm not saying every one of them's our issue. That every one of them we somehow should be able to fix. But why? I mean, Lebanon's a bleep hole. Syria, Iraq, Gaza, West Bank somehow is somewhat together, it appears, compared relative to everybody else. Sudan, I mean, these places are all, nobody can afford to eat. Nobody's got a job. And this this is not, we we can't manufacture enough bullets to kill everybody if we don't get them some chow or we get them a job. I mean, not we, but the world. I mean, it, this is never going to end until some some some, no, some mean, of this gets I mean, fixed. That's that's been that's been human history. We we got lulled we got lulled into into you know sort of a passive state after uh, after the end of, of Vietnam, where things kind of sat at a low simmer. But we didn't see the mass movements of, of populations like we're seeing now. This is chief. This is human. This is human history. But, but we are. But w- we are, we, I mean, sometimes I think we underestimate what we do. And I listened to the, the Fed guy yesterday, and I'm sitting there going, I'm sure he's a brilliant man, and if I went out with him, I'd be so impressed. But And, and he probably knows more than he's talking. But, Lou, don't, don't they understand that when you, when you, when you, when you uh, do these little tricks? I mean, Stanley Druckmann was on the other day talking about how dumb the Fed was, the Treasury was, by not putting out more bonds when they were one and a half to one 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 point eight percent ten and thirty year bonds how they had their chance to really finance Luke what what are these idiots I mean he's not an idiot Bob he's brilliant what are these idiots talking about I mean you talk to oh. me you talk to me for a second you talk to me what you just said was you should have run these interest rates down to where they were non-sustainable taking the opportunity to sell to your population when they're paying your friggin salary Stuff that three years later is going to be worth sixty cents on the buck, Lou. That's not that's not the government I'm looking for. Then why do you, why do you think food prices around the world have gone up so much? We did it, and and the central bank of Britain and the central bank of Japan, and and, and, the, and the euro. We we did it. We 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 raised the price of all this stuff to where people can't afford to eat worldwide. We did it. Why? You don't, you don't think it has something to do with the price of oil? No. Which is, by the way, is needed to dry crops. I, I, don't, to don't, crops don't, don't, don't drop into the 1973 argument. Everything would be okay if only if only I'm the not, Arabs I'm weren't not dropping there. into the 1973 argument. I'm just saying I'm sure that has an impact on it. It was one of the things that was projected what? when Ukraine was invaded. Okay, all right. Go, go, back, go back to what I'm talking about. And that's okay. You're wondering. Well, you've talked about the price of food. That's no, why, why, why do you think... Is the price of oil up or the value of the dollar down? By the way, I, I'm going to throw this, the, another one of the classic sports metaphor or sports uh, aphorisms out there. And, uh, you know, it, I believe it's Yogi Berra, but, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. I would, I would say that if you told me 
that you're going to increase the money supply by 40%, I will tell you the price of oil is going to go up 40%, which it right. has. Okay. But now, okay. but I mean, did, did the price of oil really go up, or did the, the value of the dollar go down? Nobody, uh, nobody thinks about it And Part B, but Part B is the answer. Well, okay. So short answer from my perspective is in the, in the last three presidential runs we've had we've elected and maybe four we've elected alternatively ideologues who are not responsive to what reality tells them or idiots mental defectives who are surrounded by ideologues such that they don't they don't have control over what the government and what their policy people are doing and so what 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 this is the, we get the government we deserve here it is you know well but the, uh, the I, I can't and I, I have problems with this I mean Kevin's tweeting and talking about the oil stuff I, I still will say that if you were to put a map of the price of oil over the last 50 years and up and down in a production and how it, how it moves and put the presidents next to it you wouldn't even recognize who the people are because the industry is so big but but having said that we don't think somebody doesn't know what they're doing, Lou. I mean, we just put out, in the last, Greg was going to look it up for us, I'm sure he has, we just put out bonds three years ago that the government could go back and buy at probably 70 cents on the dollar. They just they just scalped their own population, the people that hire them, 30%. Yeah, yeah but I'm sure, I'm sure if we look at that those decisions, we would see some kind of short-term political benefit from from doing that. And that's and that's all they. That's when, all when we, you when you that's all our government cares about. When you run interest rates down, all you do is 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 kick up the value of fixed assets for some people to the detriment of the rest of the people. Yeah, but but I think I think you don't need to get that conspiratorial. It's I not mean, it's conspiratorial. It, it it's absolutely the truth. Be, <laughs> I think there may be something to that, but but my point is look to look to another short term political gain basis for those decisions. Rather than the, I mean, the fact I think the fact that it benefits certain a certain class is just sort of icing on the cake. Well, look look what's going on right now. You got, you've got the guys in the because we'll continue this next week. Look look at the guys in the in the house screaming and yelling about you know coming cutting costs in some areas, which I don't have a problem with. By the way, I'd be worse than the than the eight people if I was in there. But never their sacred cow is you can never get. A big corporation actually pay their friggin' taxes. I'm not saying it would. would they, they, you can't go there, Lou, with these guys. And it doesn't matter if, which side it is. They're not going to raise taxes because they'll be thrown out of office, and they can't cut spending to some areas entitlements because they're going to throw it out of office. And they fight back and forth, and neither one of them is willing to do either one of the things you have to do. I mean, we're talking about the the corporations in this country are paying like less than eight percent or nine percent of all the taxes. They don't pay anything. Some of these people. And yet, that seems to be okay. You could ne- you can't get one of the people from the Republic- Republican side of the aisle to say, "Hey, this Microsoft really does owe us twenty nine billion dollars when they were when they were cheating when they were in Europe." You can't get anybody to say that because they're big businesses people. You can't get the other side to ever say, "Wow, maybe we shouldn't uh, pay all these hospitals this kind of money for stuff that is way is way overpriced, or we can't do anything against the drug company." Neither side can touch the drug companies. I mean, we, we have these sacred cows. The rest of it's just it's just people talking all day long. It's all nobody does anything. <laughs> they just talk. 
Well, that, that goes back to our ideo ideology yeah. issue and, and our, our constant discussion on that point. Um, I'm going to leave you yeah. with, with one thing from last week. The Army was the, were the ones that, that got Robert Card, the main shooter. They were the ones that, that put him in the, in the institution. And, and they had specifically warned, apparently, law enforcement that this guy was not to have firearms and that, and that there, he was a danger. And so that ball got dropped, just like it always Lou, gets dropped in these Lou, cases. The, the, if you look, Chicago is not just the only place. I get a lot of listeners. I talk about Chicago. And people call in and say, don't, don't think you're alone. There'll be some, some, some small town. So we just had three murders last week, too. This, police don't do what they're supposed to be doing. You drive, all you do is drive around. There's nobody out there. I don't know what they do all day. I mean, it's, it's I, up and incompetence up and I down the board. It's, and I, I would want to be in office. If you were the president, okay, which side of the aisle you are, could you count on that bureaucracy to do what you asked them to do in any case? No. No. And I, 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 I deal with the federal and state bureaucracies all the time. Let's let Mr. Janitas on. Yeah. You take care of yourself. You, SP Futures up 24. Nancy, if he's up 138. Greg, a real quick break, and now let's get Dan in. Is your business being challenged by the complexities surrounding healthcare reform or other matters related to human resources management? If so, then Cognos HR can help. A longtime friend and contributor to the Stocks and Jocks radio program, Cognos HR provides its clients with a perfect blend of strategic consulting and day-to-day -day HR management to drive overall improvement in business performance. Companies that join the Cognos HR family are better able to manage healthcare costs, enhance benefit offerings, and improve employee satisfaction by leveraging our access to Fortune 500 benefits. Our innovative onboarding and payroll technology, along with our constant attention to detail, enables us to provide the highest level of quality service to our clients. Now, your time and energy can be focused on generating business and increasing your bottom line. We'll take care of the rest. For more information, call us at 630 401 8810 or search us on the web at CognosHR.com. Cognos HR, innovation in human resources. Licensed in Illinois and Arizona. Stocks, jocks, stocks and jocks. Stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right now. Well, I'm going to back Greg Pappas on the board. SB Futures up 23 and has up 134. Do we have Mr. Dan? Dan, I missed you. Three weeks. Yes, I missed you too. Our, uh, <laughs> our, our, our listeners need their Dan fix, and so do I. Yes. What's yeah, up? Yeah, and it's a and it's been a um, period where bonds are looking more and more attractive. So, so my uh, our strategy here is actually looking even more attractive than it was a few weeks ago. I would say so you're correct. Is, where where yes. are you? What do you what do you? I got a bunch of stuff for you. What do you make of the fact that the uh, with a little bit of dip near the end that the yield curve looks like it's, it's Pretty darn near flat. Getting closer to being flat, anyway. Yeah, and and I I do I am a believer in the yield yield curve, so I do think that that what that's telling us is that we're not going to see you know any kind of serious downturn or serious recession um, as the curve flattens out. There's it, it's interesting that we you know I believe that we already had a quote recession with two consecutive quarters of negative GDP um, a few years ago. And there is still this talk, it's really interesting that there are still people who are insisting that we're about to have um, a major, um, you know, sell-off. And, and I think part of the reason for that is just the concerns overseas. So the geopolitical risks that we're seeing in, in um, Ukraine and, and Israel and, 
and also kind of the mess that China is right now. And I and I you know I hope I'm not offending anybody when I say that, but there's from an economic uh, point of view and from a financial markets point of view. Um, I don't see a whole lot of upside there. I don't see it as a place to invest. You know, as I've mentioned in the past, um, it's very difficult to get information, accurate information from from, um, Chinese uh, companies. So I would say that there are still concerns. Um, Some of the concerns we have here domestically do seem to be impacting our markets. In other words, some of the political concerns and, and the election coming up and those day-to-day things don't seem to be affecting our markets. I think the global picture does. So what happens is there are several things going on that are favorable for the economy. And one of those is still seeing, you know, 3.8% unemployment, still seeing larger demand for labor than we have supply. So that labor imbalance, which I've been talking about for the past few years, is unique in this environment. There are still certain sectors and certain industries and certain companies that have to pay up for talent. So there's still, um, you know, engineering. There, there are ph- um, pharmacists. There are still, there are still people out there that are wanting more money. We've seen the um, strikes from the UAW, from from the uh, nurses out in California. We're seeing it on local level here um, with the teachers. And there's so that I think is going to continue because inflation is already here. Um, there's I hear talks that inflation is coming down. I'm not sure where that is, um, yeah. but I don't know that I'm necessarily seeing that. And after this trip out west, I definitely didn't see it out west. So so the day to day prices, if you will, the things that everybody has to pay, whether it be gasoline or you know or whether it be food. Um, or even looking at you know housing expenses, and when I say housing expenses, I'm talking about people who already live in houses that have to pay extra. Oh, it's absurd. Yeah, insurance absurd. and taxes. So I, I'd say that there's there is, there are some positive factors in the economy, and what what happens with the longer end of the curve trading up, it's it's generally what happens before in the flattening of the yield curve happens before we see a more moderate in. And the, and the word I used at the beginning of this of this period of the last few years was stabilization. So after the big sell-off in, in uh, well, let's say March of 2020, when COVID hit, when oil prices, um, you know, went crazy, when we saw a lot of volatility in the equity markets, since then there has been a stabilization, although we do not see that stabilization in the U.S. equity market this year. And we've talked about this, Chief, that there's a sector rotation that's happening in in equities. And it's really hard to chase that because you can start following, you know, you, you can love a stock. Um, we have some companies that we have on our bench. And I think we have a very talented bench, if you will, um, that we're ready to, to, um, to put to work. But I don't think this is quite the right time. Yeah, and how there's do you, still, uh, a question when you, when you, Talk about the you know the, not going in the recession, and you focus on some numbers that, by the way, I think we used to be able to focus on. I, I'm just I'm wandering off the deep end into the ocean, maybe by myself. But Joel was on the, uh, last week, and we're, we got, of course we got into our recession discussion. 
in uh, my views are if you look at people, there's recession all over the place. If you look at the numbers, they almost sound like what AOC, and I don't want to sound like AOC, but she said something about if you look at the piece of paper, we're doing fine. If you look at the people, we're not. Uh, that sort of thing. I, I mean, Joel basically said, Chief, there's never been a recession when you had 3.5% unemployment rate. Now, first of all, my first economic class I ever took, and I don't want to say how many years ago that was, the first thing the professor said is this economic, this unemployment rate is, a, is basically the crappiest number out there, and it always will be. Uh, how do you, and, and by the way, I, if you were to say, boy, the unemployment rate is 3.5%, how the hell can you be in a recession? The, the Tom Howell of 10 years ago would have said, I, I agree with you, but now I look at, I don't know a soul who's gotten a new job that actually works 40 hours a week. Yeah, I mean, that's I, a real I mean, That's every, a really good point. I mean, there's That's people that are there's people that are part time, and if and if you were to say to me after listening, and by the way, you're much brighter than these people, all day long how tremendous everything is, and everybody's got a job, and and blah blah blah, and I look at the uh, receipts of the government from individual pay payroll, and they're down year over year. How can they both be true? I I just look at this stuff. Something something's wrong here. I can't put my finger on where it is. But stuff is not matching up, man. I mean, people. It I think, I mean, yeah. may, maybe it's people that are, are are actually have a job are in a recession or something. Something is weird here. I mean, it, it's it, you know having having spent a couple of weeks out west and getting a different perspective than what's going on in our world here in in, in Florida, where we're still seeing a, a lot of um, moving in. There is you know there's I read articles that there's moving out, but I still see a lot more movement in. I see a very high demand for housing here. I see even the in the golf course community where I live, a limited number of, you know, very small inventory. So, you know, you really have to, I think, when you travel, you, you get a better picture of what's going on. Um, out west, I see, uh, you know, kind of a, a different attitude, especially towards work. And I think it's that psychological shift, if you will, and the views towards work. I think a lot of it on COVID the people getting used to working from home, people getting used to getting those PPP checks. The average person is does not have the background that we have, Tom, in terms of our economic and financial know-how that we've had since since college. You know, we've we've this is just our field. This is what we know. A lot of people are what I refer to as spenders, and you put money in their hands, whether it be PPP money or some free money. And all of a sudden they spend it, they, you know, they do foolish things with it. Um, I have seen a fair number of people who got money during that period who have been able to retire on that money. Well, I don't see people getting that money and saying, I know there are some that do this. I'm going to invest in a new business or I'm going to save it and invest it. More than likely people are spending. And if you look at the numbers for consumer spending, because we're talking about unemployment, Consumer spending numbers are still very, very strong, and that's discretionary spending. So, despite the you know the AOC's comment about you know the individual person, that depends on the individual person you're talking about. If you're talking about people who have come in, you know, illegally across the border and they're trying to make ends meet, and they haven't quite found a job yet. Then maybe I can I can see that, but I think that's something we have to step back and look at. I, I would say, you talk, or I would, I would I say, you, what, you, what you're really saying is there's a, and this 
part of but the reason why I'm, I'm kind of going down this road is the Target CEO this morning just came out and said spending is is, is falling at every virtually every level of, of his their clients today. Same thing the Walmart guy said two weeks ago. Uh, I it, it it's not su- surprise. I mean I, I'm with you, Dan, but I don't know. I'm saying I don't know how the numbers. I'm, I'm looking at the numbers, trying to. The fact that somebody got the PPP loan that owned a pizza place that never shut down, and he got a check for three hundred fifty grand, and he just went out and bought a hundred thousand dollar Jeep. Yes, that is absolutely going on. And there's people that never dreamed they'd have this kind of money that do. That all of a sudden came from the government. What I'm what I'm saying the the amount of people at any at any level. As a matter of fact, there was an article in uh, on CNBC last week about. The people who live in the suburbs, the the family that is already working two jobs, mother uh, mother and father, they really can't unless they want to start cutting lawns on the weekend as well. They got nowhere else to go. They're just between the insurance and the taxes and the price of the cars and the education. They're they said in a lot of ways, percentage wise, they're hurting worse than the lower class. In some, in some, yeah, and I and I agree with you that on that. It, and the other thing that's happening, if you think about people who live in you know uh, condos or developments that have HOA fees, is that the expenses across the board have gone up, whether it be utilities or or property taxes. Um, so yes, I I absolutely agree with you. That there are people in in what I would refer to as the middle class who um, were not given this money and do have a work ethic and and, and are still out there trying to. Um, make ends meet and of course it, it's challenging for everybody on certain levels you know when you go into a um, you know into a grocery store or you go to a gas pump in California and you're looking at the, you know at the at the cost it's it's it is challenge that really does impact everybody if not um, just psychologically but in terms of the people who are feeling it the most that's true I'm just starting to hear people who I would call professionals who are in the baby boomer age having some concerns. Now on the flip side of that are the people who are of retirement age and they can't they're in fields that they can't find enough young people and they're and the people that are our age, let's say, are being offered these hefty salaries to stay on. So there's there are two different things going on here. I will also say that at the the lower level jobs or the new new entry positions, um, there's you know the, you can get a wage that's much higher for working at a grocery store, for example, or or Home Depot, if you're just looking to make extra money. So th- those opportunities are there. But they're not but even. They're not even. Match. They're not there's, even. Uh, you, you you can be making sixteen dollars an hour. And, and, and a sandwich and a Coke cost you $16 for lunch. We're, we're not even on the same planet. It was where we were in terms of what, you know. Two years back. I mean, in terms of, you know, even, even if the person makes, used to make 10 bucks an hour, and now he's making, he or she is making 14 you can go gaga over a 40% raise. Dan, it's still... It's still nothing. It's still nothing. Yeah, I mean, but. I, I think the bottom line is what we're saying is there's absolutely still inflation. And, and, and I, I know that I, I listened to um, Chair Powell yesterday and I listened to the questions. And, and you know, there's no question. There, there are people who talk about this pivot, and I have no idea. I think they need to go back to school and take economics one-on-one, one-on-one. We're, we're, um, we're very much in an inflationary environment, we're very much in an environment where rates are gonna remain high. I don't see any major, anything major coming in. One, there's two different ways that rates could come down, and this is on the long end and the short end. And on the, um, if the Fed pauses 
and if and it continues to pause and continues to make it clear that hey we've done our work then we will see some decline in in the short rates and we will see a yield curve that'll be even steeper if on the other hand inflation continues to be a problem and there's more geopolitical risk and there's more market uncertainty and there's more fear then we're going to see investors both in the US and overseas stepping into our market buying longer treasuries and then driving the price of treasuries um, treasury yields down driving the price of, of the bonds up so so those two environments could could happen and we're kind of in the best of both worlds right now I'm very excited as a bond manager that now we finally have some yield and I wanted to mention um, a couple of ways to play that in fact recently um, there is that you know municipal bonds are looking very attractive people are concerned now because the interest income they're receiving on bonds whether it be t-bills or or corporate bonds is higher and so that means taxes well municipal bonds right now are looking the most attractive they have and and you know over 15 years this is they're offering more yield, which is great. And my recommendation to the listeners, if you wanna get involved in municipal bonds, buy individual bonds. If you're in Illinois, try to find Illinois um, bonds, try to find bonds that are rated single A or higher. Um, try to stay short, um, ideally two years and under, um, but five years and under is fine. At this point, it, we're not quite ready to go longer because I do think there's interest rate risk. Look for uh, a yield of around 5% tax-free. Don't buy a big discount because you do pay capital gains, but you don't pay interest income. So, um, Capital gains is what, 20%? What, I'm sorry? Capital gains 21% or something? What's capital gain tax? Yeah, it's around, yeah, I mean, it depends on your, your income tax bracket, but um, it's around 20%. Um, but what I'm saying is for municipal bonds, the interest income is tax-free. So if you buy a municipal bond with a you know two-year municipal bond with a 5% coupon that's trading at 100 at par, then I think that's a good hold. That's okay. a good buy hold. You could sell it and make more. We, sell, we, we, we trade them often in the secondary market. But as an individual investor, that's a good, good purchase. Two things you got to watch out for. One of them is call protection. Many municipal bonds have call protection, which means the municipality um, or the issuer has the option of calling the bond back. So even though the price that they call it back might be about the same as what you paid for it, it's gonna shorten the duration of your, of your um, holding. So if you say, oh, I'll lock this 5% in for two years, but didn't read the fine line that it's callable, you, that bond might be taken away from you in six months. The other thing is, um, I guess beyond just buying Illinois paper, if you're in if you're in Illinois, you can also buy paper from you know, and that will actually give you both. If you buy an Illinois bond, it will give you both federal tax exemption on the interest income, as well as state tax exemption, as well as local tax exemption. The other bonds you could buy, if you want that triple tax exemption, would be bonds that are issued by Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico Electric, Guam, the Virgin Islands, 
Um, so those would be ways of diversifying a little outside of the state of Illinois. Yeah, don't you make you have to make sure that you uh, are going to outlive the bond because you you sure as hell don't want to have to sell it. I mean, I, well maybe maybe I've gotten a bad taste for this. I know you obviously can do a lot better on this, but we've had some guys that have piled into PTM. When I say guys, uh, clients, uh, guys uh, that carry with them some. God, we had one guy that had a uh, a TIF bond for some place in Philadelphia. God. The end of the bid was forty at eighty or something. I mean, you can, some of this stuff you can't get rid of ever. Yeah, so that, so that is one of the drawbacks that, that you know. Again, we manage. We're trading on an institutional platform. We have much better access than a retail investor. We have access to a lot more um, municipal bonds, and we have access at much better pricing. And we trade in the secondary market. So we're we're looking. We're we're managing it actively we don't do ladder strategies we don't do buy and hold strategies in fact i don't believe in that because you can lose out um and if you don't follow the credit very carefully you could have a, a situation however that all being said but don't most most is a, is a bad word but don't a lot of muni bonds when when the you know the o'hare runway thing comes out for 20 years isn't it usually one or two or three uh, insurance companies just buy it, expect to have it for the whole twenty years? I mean, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, it's not really designed. A lot of this stuff, like the stuff you find, is very unique. But if it's you know, a lot of the stuff is not designed to be traded. And, and if you, I mean, the people that normally trade, say, stocks and ETFs through us uh, or something like that, they look at the market on some of these bonds and they go, well, "What kind of market is that?" It's it's not like the stock market. It's no. Like, not at all. In fact, what you're what you're talking about, Chief, is is something that provides inefficiencies. So one of the reasons that I really like the municipal bond market, and by the way, I've managed municipal bonds now for almost forty years. In fact, when I ran the the, the fixed income group for the Mackenzie Ivy funds, I managed five uh, municipal bond mutual funds, and they had at least four stars by Morningstar. So so this is an area of expertise. It's an area where there are inefficiencies. It's an area where if you understand the market and you make a good point that a lot of insurance companies, property casualty insurance companies, um, buy these bonds and hold them. But if you know how to trade them um, in the secondary market, which is an advantage we have over retail investors, you can really do quite well just in the trading aspect. Um, the, the other thing I'd say about muni bonds as a group compared to corporates, compared to mortgages, is that they have much lower default rates. So there's there's backing generally, but you have to know the bond and we're looking at the indentures. Um, we're looking at the indentures and we're doing our homework on these bonds. You have to know the bonds, but there's, there's um, gonna generally be a much lower default rate. In fact, what's interesting is- Yeah, do you, do you, I'm sorry, do you, do you like, in general, do you like the revenue bonds or general obligation bonds? Well, the GOs are going to be are generally going to be more safe, but they're not going to give you quite as much yield. Um, so, and again, it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in a state like Illinois, you might get paid a little more on the GO bonds than you would if you were in a state like Wisconsin. So that would be, you know, that would be a difference. Um, so I would be okay with them. You always have government backing. Um, there, you know, the, there's more and more money that's being funneled to municipalities through the Inflation Reduction Act. So through the Infrastructure Act, we're getting, um, municipalities are getting funded for different projects. So th that would help. 
and when you're looking at a specific revenue, um, there are certain types that are better than others. You know, if it's an airport, you know, you're looking at an expansion of O'Hare, or if you're looking at um, a school district, those are generally going to be high quality. And the ratings on municipal bonds are usually um, pretty, uh, you know, dependable. Um, there, there's always going to be a lag, like there is when, when the rating agencies rate corporate bonds. But I think if you're looking at it just from the point of view of default rates, municipal bonds have a considerably lower default rate than corporates. So, Dan, corporates if, I, do- if you get a, when I say a revenue bond, I'm talking about like a. Uh, a sewer treatment plant that actually is a yes. taxing thing by itself. But if you get a an O'Hare runway bond, they're not they're not funded by landing fees separately, are they? They're they're more of a general obligation bond. Are they, not, what what are they? They're not they're not a strict revenue bond where it's you know it's paid for by the you know sand streets and sand tax on your on your return. But they're they're for a specific purpose. But they're not really a revenue for that purpose. Is it, or am I being foggy yeah. here? Yeah, no, it just it really depends on how the bonds are issued and what, you know, and this is where people like us do our homework to read the indenture and, and understand where the ultimate obligation goes. So general obligations would be um, paid for by it's the, you know, the municipality um, has the the tax paying, um, you know, the, the, the residents, you know, taxes as the source of funding. And then for, depending on the specific type of revenue bond, some are funded through the municipality. So it could be a school district, for example, and those would have, those would have um, funding that would be similar to the funding on a general obligation bond okay. for, say, the city of Chicago. But then there are other unique municipal bonds that would be um, industrial revenue bonds. So it might be a company that is doing a project, um, and that particular project—I uh, don't—I can't think. You know, let's say uh, Union Pacific, or let's—you know—we're not buying the stock here, but they are—they're able to issue municipal bonds on a specific project that might have to do with the building out of, say, um, you know, some public transportation or some. Or something, um, uh, you know, on a on a you know might be an additional wing on a on an airport. The funding is not always public for airports, so you have to really look at the 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 you have to read the indenture to find out where the funding is coming from, because it's that funding that makes that bond more or less attractive. So that there there are situations where if the company, if it's a an industrial revenue bond and it's it's backed by a company. It, you have to really understand the the corporate the credit risk of that particular company because that will come into a play, but certainly not as much as if you were just buying the corporate bond of that company. So be very careful. Don't just say, okay, I need a, a I want to buy a two year um, Illinois bond and then just buy whatever is rated single A. You really have to take a look. And so you, you got to read them. So, but yeah, but in theory, a, a revenue bond when you get your tax bill. And there's 15 different things on there. For it to be a revenue bond, one of those things has to be the tax thing that your bond is from, right? The rest, the rest is all sort of a muddled, kind of a muddled uh, general obligation bond for like a specific purpose. But still, it's the, the city's on the hook, right? Yes. To, to give you an example, like a number of years ago, when I ran 
you know, the worst case scenario, a distressed municipal fund I actually ran um, back in the 80s. And there wasn't a whole lot of, I mean, back in the late 90s, and there wasn't a whole lot of distressed municipal debt. But for example, we would buy, uh, I can think of one in um, a developer that had built um, on, out on an island in Puget Sound. And there were, you know, the bonds were paying a 14% coupon. And part of the reason for paying that is the illiquidity of the bonds. Like you were saying, some of them get taken out by, you know, get, get bought by say an insurance company or, or just a, a few investors. The developer, the homework you do is on the developer who's building that project. They get municipal financing and the funding because of that local municipality. Another case, is, which is very similar, was um, a, a builder that was building in, um, in, the, in the desert, and I think it was Palm Springs or Palm Desert, and it was on a casino. So the builder, when I was doing my due diligence, I, we went out and we met with the builder. The builder had a fantastic reputation, just as the builder did up in Washington State. And the building, the project was being done on a, an in, you know, a Indian reservation, and that's how they this was able to be done through municipal financing. Well, both of those deals were layups. They were it just involved getting to know um, where the risk is, and the risk would be with the developer. If for some reason the developer went bust, then you'd have a problem. But the funding and the ability to access the funding came from the location. For example, Indian Reservation, or in the case of Puget Sound, there was it was on an island that that had um, you know it was a municipality, if you will, and that was how they they were able to fund these projects. So there, the mechanics behind that can be somewhat complicated, and that's why reading the indentures is important. But you can make, um, like I said, 5% right now, tax-free. Yeah, what's the uh, what's usually the minimum on these things? In it, you can't. Can you buy ten thousand of these things, or you got to you got to be like fifty you, or hundred? You can. You know, it really depends. You can. The interesting thing about the way munis trade, unlike corporates, is that they generally trade in increments of five thousand. So you can buy buy five, ten, fifteen, twenty. If you are talking about a larger issue size, like a, a Chicago, for example, that issued a a billion dollars. Um, it's still going to be 5, 10, 15, 20. That's kind of across the board really? okay. in municipals, but certainly you can get better pricing if you're buying a larger piece. Okay. Dan, thank you. Uh, we might have to have you on. Uh, we're going to have to make up on our Dan fix. Sure. When, 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 uh, yeah. when do we want to start buying a, a, a U.S. 30-year bond at like 70 cents on the buck? One of these days? N- not quite yet. Not quite yet. I think, you know, sit on the sidelines on that one for right now and stick with the six-month T-bills at 5.6%. There will be a time, and it's coming It's coming soon. I don't I don't think these guys can get away with what they said yesterday, Mr. Flanagan here, but to me, he basically said, we got a 40% bubble, even though we're saying it's 20. Live with it. And, oh, by the way, the 2% going forward will get there someday, but if it's 3 and 4 for a while, that's good enough because we're going to protect – the asset older, holders versus other people. That, that's that's what he said to me. Am I wrong? I'm, I, everyone has an opinion. <laughs> that's all I'll say. So you're saying, oh, no, please, you know what? I want to be wrong. So if, please yes. tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be wrong. I just, I, but that's, that's I, what I'm, yeah, I'm saying. I get it. I, I get it. We're, it's, it's an interesting time that we're in, and it's and like you said, there's a lot of mixed messages going out there. There's 
the talk of asset flow, there's a talk of you know price. I think the one thing that I do agree with, and I like the way Chair, Chairman Powell um, of the Federal Reserve says this, we really need price stability, and that hasn't happened yet. And as long as that doesn't happen, we're open to a lot of risk. But I, well, okay, I guess my the, the the gorilla in the room is, I don't think regular Americans can handle the forty percent bubble they're, they're dealing with. I agree. Now, how you how you track that back? By the way, one real quick thing again, another real quick thing is that guy Grunlich was on yesterday, and he if he was on debating, he'd be debating you because he would say everybody says when the inverted yield curve comes up that. It points toward a recession. He goes, it probably points toward one, he says, but it never happens until it flattens out. When it flattens out, that's when you get it. There's a delay. And I, I don't know where, I don't know enough of my history of recessions to know whether he's right or I wrong. Say, I would say I don't agree as a bond manager with that. Okay. I say that we had the, we had the recession with two negative, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP a few years ago. Even though um, somebody, you know, they, somebody wanted to change the definition of recession, like they want to change the definition of a lot of words, we had that. The thing that that um, I would say it's it's not true. As the yield curve starts to flatten, um, we have more stability in our in the economy. Uh, I'm going to agree with you, except if you have enough inflation, you never have a recession. Yeah, I mean the. The, the inflation is really the concern, and yeah. that's why I think price price stability is important. We're still, I think Powell also made another good comment. You got to be patient. Where this is working itself through. One of the things that's happened, um, Chief, as you know, is that a lot of people have lost their patience or their time horizon has become very small. We are long-term investors, just as you guys are. Um, you've got to consider the long term and not just look for the sh- the quick play because. This is absolutely not the time period to be looking to make quick money in an investment. I would agree. And I've done that five years ago, yeah. ten years ago, not today. I would agree. I also know an awful lot of people are losing their patience in general. But anyway, in, in general, there, you know, we haven't had you know last year the market was down twenty percent. This year it's been volatile. Bond market is down three and a half percent. We're up, by the way, four and a half percent. So we're doing well relative to the market. But it's been hard to make money in the financial markets the last two years, and people are looking for other investments. And as you mentioned, the asset bloat up in the bubble. I mean, then they're saying like, okay, let's turn to real estate. Well, you've got another market oh, that's God, greatly yeah. overvalued throughout the country. I don't know where there's opportunities there yet. Well, that's what we're talking about, Mr. Flanagan. Dan might have to have yeah. you back on uh, before next Thursday because we got to catch up on our Dan fix. Sure, absolutely. Up... I'm, I'm around. All right, SP views up 34, okay. and Nancy views up 179. We're still moving up. Quick break and going to Mr. Flanagan. This self-directed trading is a lonely job. Online trading is not as easy as point and click. No, it's not. Everyone, even professionals, need to share ideas and think out loud every now and then. That's what I like about PTI Pro Direct. Their staff of former option floor traders really helps me choose the right strategy for trading option volatility and plan the time decay for my covered writing program. Yep, nothing can replace years of trading experience to stop you from making that dumb trade and for saving a few bucks. We've all been there and done that. <laughs> yeah, I have access to all that great trading advice and experience for just a penny a share for stocks, $1 for equity options, and $1 minimum a trade. Our clients at PTI ProDirect can call when they need a little help on a trade or just to talk about the market in general. We trade every day. We love this stuff. That's what I like most about PTI ProDirect. Cheap prices along with great advice from real floor traders. It's the best of both worlds. Tell your friends. That's PTIProDirect.com. PTIProDirect.com.
stocks, jocks, Carson jocks, stocks and jocks. You are out of control. Right here, right now, right here, right now, right now. Lord and Rumpex, Tyson Jacks, I'm Tamal. Greg Pappas on the board. SP Peters now up 34, 35, so we'll keep creeping. I, I don't. I think we got a pretty good rally on our hands here. Uh, NASDAQ futures up 183. Um, we have Dow futures up 170. Uh, I think, you know, I think the, the, the uh, Fed chairman gave the all clear yesterday. Huh? The all clear to where? I don't know, but, he, but the all clear. Over in Europe, uh, these stocks are crazy up. DAX up 237, 1.6%. FTSE up 87, 1.2%. Kakaron up 131, 1.9. Uh, it's uh, Bank of England hold rate steady as well. Uh, the Nikkei up 348, 1.1%. Hang Seng up 128.7, so they're 17,230, so I guess somewhat comfortably over 17,000. Shanghai, however, was down 13, 3,009. Uh, I don't know if they're in danger of going under 3,000 again. It's kind of odd. Yesterday, big rally, Dow up 221, S&P up 44, NASDAQ up 210. Uh, bonds down 11 basis points now, 4.68. Not sure where that's coming from, but it's coming from somewhere. Uh, the Bund down 7 basis points, 2.68. Japan down 4 basis points. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, down 4.92. They were almost to, they were almost to 1% yesterday, which would really have been something. They haven't been 1% in decades. Uh, oil up 57 cents, but still 81.01. Rent up 64 cents, 85.27. Is that spread between all? Uh, West Texas and Brent expands a little bit. Uh, natural gas down six cents, two forty-three. Arbob up a penny, two twenty. Gold, a little bit of a rally here, nineteen ninety-six. Looking like it might make an assault on two thousand. We'll see. Silver up thirty-two cents again, over twenty-three bucks, twenty-three eleven. Every time it gets over there, it gets whacked back. Is it going to happen again today? Who knows? We'll see. Copper up one cent, three sixty-six. We have Bitcoin up now eight twenty. It's rallying pretty good here. It's up two percent, thirty-five thousand four hundred seven. We have the U.S. dollar getting whacked here. It's almost a percentage point move against the euro. The euro is a 106.5, and the British pound is 122. So dollar in the, in the crap hole here. What do you think about that, Greg? You, you, you short the dollar, bud? Uh, no. no. Why not? Those came off last week. Oh, all right. You're a day early? <laughs> yeah. Week. Yeah, it's a week early. Whatever. What do you got for us? Something quick. Um, Chicago, 34 degrees, 52 today. Phoenix, um, 57 right now, 85 today, plenty of sun there. Traffic, we've got 50 minutes from Montrose to the interchange, 91 minutes from uh, Lake Cook to the interchange. That That's uh, significantly higher than just 15 minutes ago, so that was increasing. Wolf um, and Inn is 43 minutes, 95th to the interchange, 33 minutes, and the Stevenson 294 to the Ryan is 43 minutes. Sports, Bulls lose at Mavs, 105-114. we got NFL. Mavs are good, on, the Bulls suck. Right. Tonight on Prime, the um, Titans-Steelers, Pitts favored by 2.5 at home. And MLB, the Rangers beat the Diamondbacks 5-0 and win the World Series. That's all I got, Chief. Back well, they had, they had enough men on the bases to win, and they doesn't do you much good, men on the bases. It's like Mr. Flanagan never showing up at the bar. He's always men on the bases. <laughs> No joy in Mudville. There is no joy in Mudville. What a great poem. There was, there was music to my ears listening to you and Lou. It makes, it makes an English major proud. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it is pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Those guys had had, had away with words. It's all, I mean, I, I always thought writing was all practice. I mean, if you, if you did a lot of it, you got better at it. Um, you know, 
you don't if you ever write anything, it's a problem, right? Yeah, knowing your audience and you know, being an audience too, um, understanding you know, the dynamic between the you know author and an audience, um, and giving people what they you know enjoy, what they remember, what they want more of. So. Well, I was always a kind of an economic writer. You get kind of to the point, and you get the numbers in there, and you back yourself up. I was never you 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 would never if you wrote the stuff that I did, you would never throw an extra adverb or adjective in there. Yet somebody like Rantlin Rice or Ernest Thayer, that's that's what their thing was: is the adjectives and adverb created an entire scene in somebody's mind, which is not a lot different than the way I write or wrote. Right, and even the ones who didn't write it out ahead of time, somebody like Red Barber, you know. And he, when he was on NPR back in the, the 80s and 90s as a commentator, I mean, he could he could be entertaining, talking about anything, just as he was on the radio for the Dodgers, but the Brooklyn Dodgers, that is. But uh, somebody could just, you know, off the top of their heads and, re- and report a game on the radio um, and not have it, you know, scripted. Uh, um, it's such an art. And, you know, I just don't, I don't think it's, you can really appreciate today with the quality of sports reporting just how good some of those people were, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Well, guys like Greg Pappas, you know, are locked into the new world, which is fine. Cause it's, <laughs> um, Greg, uh, you, you probably do because you're a real bright guy. Do you, do you remember that they actually used to have sports announcers that weren't even at the game? They would actually get the, oh. a teletype. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I didn't know that. Did you ever, there's a, uh, God, if I could find it, it must be on YouTube someplace. There was a, a Lucy episode where she was doing that. <laughs> I mean, but you had you had all the sound effects in, in front of you, Greg. And then what happened is you get the teletype and you'd say, Matt Weber gets to hit the center. You press the button where it was the crack of the bat, and then there was the crowd, and you had to actually work all that stuff while you were, oh, and Matt Weber hits a single single to the left. I mean, you you worked all the sound effects, and it was like you were there, except you couldn't see it, and all you had was a teletype. I can't imagine what imagination that that took. It move all that stuff. I whatever. Um, All I can think about is playing tricks on that person. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. Um, anywho, John, you've been, you've been listening in, and everybody, if you, you focus on a number, uh, you can make any economic number or argument here you want. And I, I really do see, and it's really hard for me to even, even, even the guys like Dan, and who really knows a lot of stuff better than I do, it's hard for me to, to convey my confusion with we really have gone off the rails. We have different parts of the population that we're pushing money towards and people we're taking money from. And it really is, you know, outstanding in the sense that, again, I think the guy's really good. And he's saying the right things from one man's perspective. But whenever there's not the kind of growth that you and I are kind of used to in our youth, uh, Every time somebody wins, somebody else loses, which is a different world than you and I would like to see. And you and I maybe, I mean, right now, I mean, I'm not going to say all the problems in the Middle East and all these other places, but there's winners here on inflation, okay? But if you were to say most people, at least anybody who studied over Chicago, and I did, if you were to say we're going to push this inflation in the economy over a period of five years, Pick a number, 30%, 40%, 20%. Virtually anybody who had those classes, if you gave them a test, they would say, all right, here's a list of five winners, here's a list of ten losers. And a lot of the losers are worldwide. They're people that live day-to-day. They're lessors. 
lessees versus lessors. I mean, you, you, can, you can create this case. that It isn't really a case. I mean, it's the friggin' truth, right? It's a question of how bad. And when we see these kinds of results happen and you see different pockets of people advantaged or disadvantaged, to me, to me it's no surprise. To me, that's, that's, what I, that's what I studied. But it seems like everybody else, it's, it's, it's sort of like it's a... But, but, but I'd have the same problem in, like, law or someplace where I don't know anything, and you do. So it's not like, but this happens to be my wheelhouse, and to me this is so simple, and yet I have trouble explaining it to anybody, it seems like. We, the numbers we have to work with, Tom, you know, the GDP numbers, for example, are completely meaningless to me because um, they are so contaminated by rampant inflation that they don't give a, a picture of economic health at all. It just means that everything is more expensive. It doesn't mean that people are buying more of anything or that, you know, there's more manufacturing or anything else. Just take, you know, and, and I'd like Greg's, you know, thoughts on this too, but the restaurant industry is the, is in some ways the most frightening thing that I can think of that kind of proves this point. Um, people just haven't bounced back in big numbers as patrons of restaurants or fast food places or anything else in the last three years. Um, and everywhere you go now, any kind of purchase of food or booze, you know, involves, you know, what level of gratuity do you want to leave, you know, or custom gratuity, um, so that that, you know, things you were never asked to tip for in the past have now become pretty standard that you tip somebody. Um, but what it's done is it's divided, divided the population into the people who can afford to go out to eat or, you know, dine at a fast food place a couple times a week and never miss what they're paying versus the people who never do it anymore. And the ones who, you know, can't do it, don't really care how the prices rise. They're, they're secure enough, you know, however they've held on to their wealth, that they don't mind paying pretty much what, what somebody's going to ask them to pay. And this gives it, you know, but you can see how few restaurants are ever really full anymore. And I think as, as they kind of understand they're never going to get a lot of these patrons back again they have to charge whatever they can to get as many people who will pay no matter what to keep them afloat and that's a pretty tenuous way to run a business too but it's, it's turned the population into you know the, the people not only who have and, and don't have it but the people who can do things and people who can't even imagine doing these things like eating out in a restaurant so that that's something that's, that's truly frightening for me and a, a kind of inflation sort of is is you know the behind a lot of this, but but the real pain that's causing is not you know clear because the numbers just get all fudged together and everything looks healthier than it really is. Greg, would you get a pain? I just think one thing that's you know kind of ironic is Hyatt recently has um, added to the bottom of their checks. Um, it says your check includes a 5% surcharge to help offset the cost of state minimum wage increases. The surcharge is not a tip or gratuity. So the Hyatt tacked that on. And for those who don't know, Hyatt's a, <laughs> a hotel chain <laughs> that happens to be owned by the governor. Yeah. You know who. <laughs> yeah, that's scary. So that's on the bottom of, I think, most of their receipts. Um, you still earn points. Uh, that's the good news on that 5%. Oh, yeah. Too. Well, there was a uh, an article, I, I should have kept it. I used to run all this stuff off until my brother accused me of killing trees. Uh, the guy was talking about, don't worry about your stock investments in a recession. He goes, if you haven't figured out what's going on, 
you will be protected. The Fed will put in enough money to make sure the market will actually go up in a recession because they'll put more money into the system. That, that is the recipe they use in the Weimar Republic. But, but he's absolutely right. I mean, that, that's essentially what the, what the Fed chairman said yesterday. If we're worried, we want to get back to this 2%, he must have said it 100 times. We're going to get back to our goal of 2%, but he basically said, if it takes us 20 years to get there, it's okay. We don't, we don't, we don't care. We, we're, we're worried more about, I mean, economically, I mean, Greg, I think, knows what I'm talking about, and I think probably you do, over a long period of time, if the monetary policy is correct, it should make no difference if you if you have a business or whatever. It should make no difference to you whether you buy or lease over a long period of time. Now, granted, if there's a time when the prices are a little bit low and you buy it, it's one thing. And if you get if you get something in an area that's terrific, you should. Those kinds of anomalies are taken. That's what makes a market strong. People see an advantage and so forth. But, in, but the general, there's a big difference between economically between somebody taking advantage of a particular house uh, you know that maybe falls into disrepair and grabs it at a discount and puts money into the place and all of a sudden now he th- that person that that's an anomaly of, of normal business but the idea that somebody who buys a house at 100 grand that f- at, at four years later is worth 300 grand, and oh, by the way, the lease has gone from eight hundred a month to three grand or four grand. That is a total anomaly of the central banking system. That can I read you guys some more? Yeah, some more uh, interesting stuff, and you can try to guess who wrote it. But this long run is a misleading guide to current affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. Economists set themselves too easy, too useless a task. If in tempestuous seasons they can only tell us that when the storm is long past, the ocean is flat again. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's nuts. That's, when they start talking about that in, in in the long run, what does that even mean? Who who said that, Greg? Yeah, who said that? Keynes. Keynes. Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> there's a guy. Uh, you know, he he was the. Oh. Uh, you know what he was? He was the, he was the chief economist as a young man. At the Treaty of Versailles. Versailles, yeah. yeah. How bad did he screw that up? Basically, guaranteed another world war, didn't he? Well, and not well, not just he alone. That's I know, uh, not just he alone. You know, he had, he had lots of help. Yeah, <laughs> including you know Wilson, who you know, I think it was the first time that a U.S. president had left the United States during term of office, um, and he made two trips to Versailles. You know, to the wrangling so-called peace conference but in the crucial sessions he was down with the flu um you know the sort of the aftermath of the november 1918 epidemic that continued on in pockets for quite a while and he was so sick that you know he, he missed a bunch of the sessions and had no desire to do battle with the you know the big four remaining people clemenceau and you know uh, every Lloyd George, everybody else who was sitting at the table, he just got, sort of threw in the towel because he wasn't up to the task. So he, there, there are all sorts of horrible things you know, th- that went into how that, that conference ended up. Uh, he, he went by steamship, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A regular one, or did he go on a military? So I don't, what do you, I don't no, remember. he went on the, the George Washington, which was a civilian, at least on the first trip, I think, which was a, you know, a United States line, I think. It was um, a passenger craft, you know, it was American, you know, 
own. But um, it was not, he didn't have, he may have had a military escort, he probably did, but um, he was on a civilian trip. He and his wife went and Colonel House, his advisor, he had a whole entourage of people, his physician and others. Well, you got to have have an entourage. You tell tell the quality of the man by the size of his entourage, right? Yeah. But I mean, nothing compared to today was, you know, a 36 car motorcade. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. To go anywhere, yeah. But it's it's not just you know food for the show that I'm questioning all these numbers because I just I, I, I you know I, I do wonder are are we going to just keep leaking money into the place or not taking it out fast enough to keep asset prices up because those are the people who control the country I'm absolutely convinced of that uh, so if if if, if Powell's going to choose which master he has that's going to be the master in my opinion and and Congress. Whether you know we can argue right or left, and you guys like to argue from the right, there's there's no no stones there whatsoever. One of the things when you got this kind of a revenue shortfall, one of the things you got to talk about is revenue. I mean, I don't want any taxes going up, but they 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 love the fact that corporations and I, I know it's a small piece compared to the big hole. They love the fact that these people don't have to pay, and, and if you were to say they have to, that's their that's their donors. I don't know that we can get all this stuff back together politically, John. And I don't, I don't know how the property stuff here, how we, how we're handling with the, we're dangling with this. What eighty percent of the population cannot cannot afford to, uh, today's housing price. So are we going to let Black, you know, BlackRock buy all the houses up, and then everybody's going to have to pay five thousand dollars rent as as a sharecropper for the rest of their life? Is that where we're going? Where are we going here? That's that's where we are, Tom. Yeah. And it, it's only likely to, to become solidified and, and baked into the system. You know, the, the middle class, such as it is anymore, is really just an underclass. It's a very large underclass. And there's what kind of mobility is there between classes anymore, other than a declining one, you know, where you fall out of, you know, apparent prosperity and you're no longer able to buy a house or to afford rent in a decent neighborhood in a decent city. Um, so I don't see any way of combating that in this kind of environment, and I I think it's just you know people being gobbled, at, you know at bigger numbers all the time into this massive underclass that's always being fueled by an even worse underclass. You know people that we've got coming in with you know, no wealth or you know literacy skills or legal residency or anything else. Um, so that the the weight of the underclass is always being pulled down. So that even people who are sort of getting by at the top of it are, are always dealing with a large group of people who are failing, or, or, or are going to be inverted. But that's, a, that's they'll a, get handouts to you know, alleviate their pain and suffering. But the average person isn't going to benefit from those. You, you and I know um, that that's, that's a, a recipe for the population. Jen. It's a recipe for disaster. You can't have the people at the top. At some point, you've you've got to have people at the bottom with money, or else the people at the top. It's, it, it never works that way. Yeah. It's unstable. Well, the, the peasants revolt. It was the 1381, yeah. you know, the, the first attempt to sort of overturn the feudal system, and it created shockwaves. And you know, this, you know, um, but you know, I, I think we're long overdue for a peasants' revolt right now, not just in this country. Well, I hope it's not one with muskets. But I, I'm I'm stunned that we have with all the alleged education we have in this world. Maybe, maybe just national TV is the opiate of the people here now, or something. I mean, when, when I I could not believe what. Uh, and, and, and I know, boy, I'd love to have him on the show because uh, I think he's been—he's a terrific uh, brain, as Drucker Mueller guy. Uh, when, he, when he, I don't, I don't, but he's—he's he's a high-end dude, right? He's upper upper crust. For him to say, I can't believe the Fed didn't sell more 
bonds at 1.5% when they could have, knowing that you're selling them to your own population and are now worth 65, 70 cents on the buck, is it is it the job of elected officials to fleece the people who put them there? <laughs> apparently, apparently, yeah, apparently it seems to me that that's that's insane to do that. I mean, well, you you it's not a, it, it creates problems that you can't fix, um, at least not in our lifetime, or maybe the next generation's lifetime, or ever. Uh, once you once you start to, you know, destroy people's wealth and and possibilities of wealth that way. Um, and you design it to do that. It's just how do you how do you rebuild that without there being some kind of violent cataclysm that throws the whole system out the window, which isn't the solution either. Well, you're going to have you know, an awful lot of people that don't have a lot of disposable income somehow having to pay for the largesse that you gave the people with the COVID stuff and with all the other stuff. I mean, I don't see how you I don't know how you get around it. It's because someplace yeah. somewhere. I I don't I don't know. I and mean, we're we're talking about Greg. One of these days. When you're on, you got to get your stopwatch out again to see if, if it's still a million dollars every 43 seconds or if it's dropped to 42 or 41. I'll bet it's dropped. Were you, were you at 43 last time? I think we did somewhere between 41 and 42. All right, so I wonder when it... I'll bet it's going to duck under 40 one of these days. We're talking about Greg uh, times the uh, debt clock to see how, how quick a million dollars goes by, and you were, you were like 41, 42? That's pretty quick. And I think you know the, the failing, you know, living standard of most Americans is, you know, it's collapsing at an even faster rate. Yeah. Well, where do, where do you think real estate values are? Are they gonna, are they somehow going to hang in there, or are we going to have some problem there? I think they'll they'll hang in there. This is why I think there hasn't been a general collapse in values. Normally, you would expect there to at least be a, a sizable decline, given you know where interest rates have gone. But it's just kind of the same thing as with the restaurant phenomenon. There's enough people around with cash in hand who have done okay and just happen to be in the market to, if not, you know, increase their their footprint for the kind of house they want. They can make a lateral move, and since they have cash in hand, they're not they don't care what the interest rate is. Um, there's enough of those people in the market to keep the, the average value of houses, you know, good houses in decent neighborhoods with decent schools. Um, at, at a plateau, and it, they're not collapsing, but but you know that's a an ever more elite group of people. The, the, I think you're looking at a much larger group of people who are completely disenfranchised. We well, look at the phenomenon. Our Monday guests, um, Audrey and Nancy, the the bifurcation there. I mean, Audrey has, uh, you know, it's not like she's got a million people working for her. She's not. She's on her own. But but Audrey does a real nice job, and she, with her group. She's able to take the group that bought their house years ago at whatever, hundred and a quarter or two hundred, and now are selling it at three seventy five and are looking to either downsize or maybe upgrade a little bit. And they're, they're essentially trading their asset asset holders trading assets. There, there there's that group. Okay, the and she's and she has enough people with her experience and, you know, people like what she does. Just by word of mouth and you know some from the show she'll she'll pick up you know those people and and she's busy and by the way for her there's not enough houses because not enough people are in that group where they can just sell it's always going to be somebody who's maybe older that has the four bedroom house that the you know the kids are gone and now they want the two bedroom real nice townhouse that uh, or three bedroom the kids can still come over by the way you don't have to cut the lawn or any other kind of crap so there, there's still movement in that area yet you talk to Nancy 
the general amount of refinancing and the more who's in more in the mortgage industry, the amount of new buyers and the amount of people refinancing is falling off a cliff totally. Right. So the inventory problem is, is not just the fact that there's nothing, uh, you know, big enough, you know, in sales, you know, of opportunities because there's not that many houses on the market, but so many of these houses that are being sold are being bought by institutional investors. They're effectively removed from the pressures of the private sector. You know what? I don't. I don't see. You're, you're right, and, and we both have heard about that, Jan, and we know about it. But I don't know uh, either one of you know Nancy and Odd. They, I don't think Odd's been outbid by one of those companies yet. I mean, they, they every place that she house that came on the market that people want, it's, it's been a person that's bought it. They're, They've not been outbid by BlackRock ever, I don't think. I mean, in her area. No, and we're not seeing yeah. it here. That's true. But but in the Sunbelt states, in Texas and, and other places, you know, in, in more mellow climates, uh, it's it's now 30 to 40% of all house sales are to institutional investors. And those are properties that I don't see coming back into. Well, John, are those, you know, are those retirement? Market? We got a dash here, but is those, are those retirement communities? I had a, a guy who traded for me once, and we went down to, uh, well, traded for me back in the 80s. And we went down to uh, Scottsdale for went spring training, saw some games, played some handball. Uh, and the uh, his parents, his step parents, because he was adopted, lived in Sun City. And I think they found out that people who bought places, Sun City is a retirement community, and they've got a bunch of them around. You can only get to a certain size, because once you get to a certain size, say it's a a five year build, you start to compete with all the people dying. So, right. so you start to compete with all the people that have to put their house on the market because they're gone. So there's only a certain amount of houses in a certain length of time that it's economically feasible to do that. And Sun City actually is way too big, according to what at the time, you know, it was a long time ago. Um, I'm guessing that there's people who are saying, why have all these people buy and then sell? Why not just somebody else buy and just lease it to them for five? I mean, there's got to be a lot of that going on because it, it, I guess it somewhat makes more sense because you know, because buying and selling a house costs money than somebody who's planning on living there twenty years, even though they don't usually. Well, especially if you're buying it at age yeah. seventy, seventy-five. Yeah. But but I think you know, there's more and more places that aren't you know designated as you know a, like a golf retirement community, but just a, you know a house in a neighborhood, and it's it's got enough attraction that you can find people who may, you know, certainly can't afford to buy it, but they'll rent it and they'll rent it from a BlackRock yeah. or a Vanguard or some other institutional buyer. And that property is gone from the inventory of a right. privately owned home. That, that, was, that will always be rental property for the foreseeable future, Tom. And that's the, the goal here is to take well, and they're, the they're, house ownership away from people. And you wonder so, why the Fed is more concerned about the owners than the than the lessees. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who well, who, yeah. who gets to call who gets to call Paul? You or me or BlackRock? I think maybe they do. John, thank you very much, Bud. SP Futures. Am I ever going to see you? <laughs> sure, Tom. Oh, God. SP Futures up 40, NASDAQ Futures up 197. We continue to run up here. Who knows? Maybe this tree will grow to the sky. We'll be right back, right back tomorrow with Stocks and Jocks.